Um, we are going to jump in now to the word this morning and continue on in our series in Philippians. We've been in Philippians for a while now, and um, we have kind of stretched it out through December because we've wanted to spend as much time as we can in some of these really important passages in Philippians that mean so much. And so this morning, we're going to be in Philippians 4, 10 through 13, which is just four verses. But in these four verses that many of us are very familiar with, we see Paul specifically talking about something that is of utmost importance to us, to everybody. Inside the church, outside the church, whether you're a believer or not a believer, this matters a lot. So I'll put these up on the screen and we can read through them. And this is Paul. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly now that at length, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul's talking here to the church in Philippi, and when he talks about their concern for him, he's actually talking about two things. One, he's been in prison or house arrest for a while now, chained to a guard, like we've said, and for a long time, Philippi wanted to send someone to bring an offering, to bring some money that they raised on his behalf, and we're going to talk about that even next week and how they go about doing that and his message to them in doing that. Uh, money that they raise that they want to send to Paul to help because he actually has to pay for things while he's under arrest. Crazy enough. And so he, is, uh, so he says to them, you've revived your concern for me. And what he means by this is simple. They've sent a guy named Epaphroditus. He brought the offering to Paul. And Epaphroditus also came and just encouraged him. Was just somebody to be there and to be with Paul and to support him in prayer in any, any way that he can. And then Epaphroditus gets really sick. And Paul, at the beginning of this letter we read, he, he sends him back. Or in the middle of the letter, he says, you know, Epaphroditus is like sick to the point of death almost, and he's finally gotten well enough to travel. I'm going to send him back. He's done a lot for me. And so the church has sent support to Paul's way, and he's so grateful for it. But Paul is constantly running into this problem in his ministry, and it's this. There are always people who are questioning his motives. People are always going, why, do pe- why is Paul doing this? doesn't make sense to us that he would care so much about these people, that he would give of himself so much to them and, and not receive much in return. At the time, there were all kinds of people going around talking about things uh, that, were, that were spiritual, that were philosophical, and then asking for money. They would, uh, they would share a message and people would like them and then they would get a lot of money from those people and then they would move on to the next place. And so people questioned the validity of anybody who was going around just asking for money. Isn't this guy Paul just going around doing this for his own benefit? And so he's continually trying to, trying to say this really complicated thing, which is, I appreciate your support. It has helped me tremendously, but don't think that I needed it because I still would have been okay. And then he goes into why that is that he would be okay. And he talks about contentment. Now, Paul is an amazing guy. He is a person that I look at and I say, I so greatly admire so much about the way this person is. Not just the things he does, but the kind of person that he is. 
Because apart from being a really good communicator of the gospel and a person who is bringing people to faith and expanding the kingdom, he's given his life for that. He's really good at it. Even, even people who, who, who don't believe that Jesus was supernaturally God and that, and, that, and that God's supernatural power grew the church, even those people still acknowledge that it was the work of Paul then because it was so much that he accomplished that they think probably grew the church. Because of these churches that he started, because of the message that he proclaimed and how good he was at doing it. Paul loved people, but he loved God and he loved God as well. He loved Jews and he loved Gentiles. He liked rich people and poor people. He didn't pick out a certain group and say, my message is for them. And it's great, but that's not even the thing that I look at in Paul and I say, I wanna be like that. What I look at and I see in Paul and I say, I want this, is Paul's contentment. Anybody who can sit in a prison cell and write and talk with joy, I look at that and I say, if I ever felt that way about life, that's what I would want. I'm probably the only person who doesn't feel content often in life. And so I would ask that you guys would bear with me as I make this a very personal message, talking about my struggle, maybe with contentment. And if there's anything that you think you could relate to, then good. The truth is, we all know what it is to not be content. We know what it is to not feel totally fulfilled, to not feel even the kind of joy that we read about, even in Scripture. And we look at someone like Paul, and we think, you know, I could spend, the the truth is, you could spend all day setting your mind on the right things, which is what we talked about last week. You could try to think the right things, and you could try to live the right way, but the truth is, if you desire something else that you don't have, then what you will do is pursue that thing. That will determine the course of your life, the things that you want, the discontent that is in your life. And we know this is true because we all know what it is to go after those things. We don't choose those things much of the time. It feels, if anything, like they choose us. But we know what it is to to struggle, to try to do the right thing, live the right way, and yet want things that drive the way that we live. The first step is admitting you have a problem. And so the first step for many, for anybody who looks at these verses, the only right step is to admit your discontent, is to say often, I don't feel the way that Paul does. I don't seem to have that sense of joy and fulfillment because we have to start there. If we start from saying other people don't, then oftentimes we're wrong. Oftentimes it's our own heart that is discontent and wants other things. Now, this is not about having very little and learning to be happy with that, even though that's where Paul is. Paul's message from this prison cell is not, guys, let me tell you how, the secret, he says, to how to be happy with nothing. This is something much bigger than that. Because here's what Paul says. He says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And that key, whatever situation, is really what Paul has been in in his life. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. He says, I know uh, the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. To be brought low and to abound is literally describing just having a life of lowly circumstances, 
Your life's hard. Maybe it feels empty to some people. Maybe it's a life filled with suffering. We look at people whose lives are filled with suffering and we think they've got to figure out how to make a low life, a life that feels lowly in that it's filled with suffering. They've got to make that work somehow. And he says, I've lived in that place and been content. But he also says, I've lived in circumstances of life that are just great, that objectively you would look at and say, that's a good life. I want those circumstances. I want to live that way. He talks about facing plenty and facing hunger. Now, the the word for facing plenty here is the word that's used in the New Testament when the disciples say to Jesus, how do we feed all these thousands of people who are here? That word to feed is to face plenty. What they're saying is to eat so much that you're full, that you're not hungry anymore. And it's important that the disciples say that. They're not saying to Jesus, hey, okay, so we've got some fish and we've got some bread, and so maybe is there a way that we can just break them up into small enough pieces that at least everybody gets one? That's not what they say to Jesus. They say, Jesus, how are we going to feed all these people so that they're filled up? And Jesus does that very thing. He feeds them to the point that they are not facing any need, but that they are filled up, that they're facing plenty. And he says, I know what it is to be in hunger, to not have enough to eat, to, at the end of the day, go hungry, because I just don't have enough at that time in my life. The truth about living in good circumstances and difficult ones, facing hunger and facing plenty, is that most of us will never know what it's like to have both of those things be a reality in our lives. The overwhelming majority of people who've lived on this planet and who will live on this planet currently are either, it seems, born into abundance and die in abundance, or they are born into need and they seem to die in need. Very rarely do people, are they born into one and they experience the other. In fact, that frustrates us about the brokenness of the world, the disparity between those two things. But we recognize, many of us, if we're honest, that we are born in abundance, we've never gone hungry, and we will probably be able to live our lives in abundance in that way. At least that's what we hope for, it's what we want for our families. Because the truth is that we have the ability to adjust often to the surroundings around us and say, this is normal. And it makes us sick when we see people who are like ultra wealthy talk about their life like this is normal, right? We think, how ungrateful are you that you've adjusted to your private plane as a normal thing and you maybe complain about it sometimes. But at the same time, we look at people who are poor, living in low situations and circumstances, and we say that we recognize that people have the ability to even adjust to that and say, this is normal. This is what I've come to expect. But Paul is able to do something totally different from that. He is saying that I've actually experienced both and I've still been able to be content. Now, very rarely will you do this. There are some people who have a lot and they lose it. And then they have to find a way, I guess, to be content, knowing that they once experienced great abundance and now they don't. Now, it's different if you give it up because people do that sometimes. People give up abundance and they choose to not have it. But that's different from having it and then having it taken away from you. You also, we know people who have not had much and then gotten to a point of having a lot, and and we often see what drives those people then is the, the, the desire to be able to make sure that they'll be secure and that they'll have things saved up. My grandparents, in many ways, lived like this as they lived through the Depression when they were young in their formative years of life. And so they spent their later years and their life after that, when they experienced abundance, when, when my grandfather had a good job and was raising a family, they saved and they lived frugally. 
you would look at my grandparents and think, they don't have a lot of money because they don't spend it all. I always remember my grandma reusing tea bags. She had a little plate on the dish, on, the, on like really, really frugal, uh, on, the, on, the, on the sink, right by the, in the kitchen sink, and she would put the tea bag in there and be like, oh, I could get perfectly good, you know, she, she had calculated how much it cost to open a refrigerator door and the light and the electricity and everything. Only begun to realize that probably wasn't an accurate calculation, but, you know, that's a dime, that's a dime, or whatever. They lived so frugally. And then when they passed away, it turned out they were very wealthy people because they had saved, because they wanted to make sure that they were never again, or their children would never again be in a situation that they had to face being in need. This is the way that we would deal with ever having to live with both of these, but that's not even what Paul does. Paul says, I've been content in all of those situations. I've learned how to do that. Now, this word content I'm going to blow your mind here. If you translate it literally, what it means is to be, let me, let me read this, make sure I don't get it wrong, to be content with what one has. There you go. So there you go. Hopefully that's added a lot of depth for you. It, it means what it says, but the context of it is very interesting because he's using a word that is used by philosophers at the time in Stoic philosophy, which was a big deal around then. And Stoic philosophy, and Cynic was what, it's, what it was also called philosophy, these philosophers, uh, they believed that there was no higher achievement in life than to reach this kind of contentment, but the kind of contentment it was, was detaching yourself from everything in life so that you could be content no matter what happened to you. And they call it stoic because it ultimately meant detaching yourself from relationships with people and saying even people. The idea was the worst thing can happen to you and it would not affect you at all. That that was their idea of contentment. And to me, that's a pretty low view of what it means to really be content. And so Paul uses this word and he says, this contentment that people are trying to achieve or living for or arguing is the best ideal to live by. He says, I have learned the secret to that kind of contentment, and yet it is so much more. Now, when we try to accomplish this, the best that we can ever do is to try to be self-sufficient. And that's how these philosophers tried to do it. They, they tried as hard as they could to live in such a way that they could depend on themselves so that they could be content no matter what happened. The idea was to be prepared for any situation, to make yourself into somebody who could handle anything, and that leads to contentment. That leads to fulfillment and security and joy. And it leads to something that I would call the addition and the subtraction of self-sufficiency of contentment. This last week, Ellie and I, this is the kind of thing we do for kicks. We uh, looked up on our TV, we have YouTube on our TV, we looked up, we just typed in the word contentment. And we were looking at what comes up. Because I was kind of curious, like, you know, what, what comes up is the top hits on this. And the majority of what came up was sermons. Um, a lot of them were on this passage. So there you go. That's how I wrote my sermon. And, uh, and if, yeah, don't go listen to them because, you know, you'll, you'll know. But a lot of them were sermons on this passage. A lot of them were teachings by other religious leaders, um, by Islamic uh, teachers, by yogis, by Buddhist monks and leaders in their faith. Um, and a lot of them were uh, teachings by people who had just chosen to live a certain way. You, you'd see a person who looks like they're going to do yoga, and that's what it would, you'd see the picture of, and it would say the secret to contentment, you know, and meditation. Uh, you would see one that was like a very happy picture of a couple, and it would say the secret to contentment, and their name would be like our tiny house life. You're like, okay, I think I know what these people did for contentment, you know. And so you, you, all this stuff comes up when we talk about contentment, and it all boils down eventually in this self-sufficient way of getting it to this. You either add something to your life and it makes you content. 
You become better in some way, and it's contentment through addition. I become stronger, I, become, I achieve something in my life that gets me to a point where I can be content no matter what happens to me. Some people even turn to religion and faiths because they want to become a person who is so good that they can now handle anything that happens to them because they've added this thing to their life. Or, and this is the one that I think we see the most often nowadays, it is contentment through subtraction. You take things away. And by taking these things away, you simplify your life. This was something that I heard about a lot, I think, in the church several years ago as, as society was going through a phase of, what do you do when you're a big group of people that just live in abundance? You eventually get to a point where you realize that stuff doesn't make you happy, and so the pendulum swings the other way, and you say, maybe if we get rid of all the stuff that we have and we live simply, then we'll be content and fulfilled. And you would often see the same thing happen in the church. People would look at all the teachings that Jesus had that in any way indicated simplicity or the way he lived, and people would say, that was the secret to the contentment that Jesus had was to give up and let go of all these things. Subtraction. You, or even you, you let go of everything, but um, through meditation and through centering yourself, you get to a point where you say, everything is quiet, but the sound of my breathing, all is kind of melting and fading away, and now I can be content with my truest, deepest self of removing all those other distractions and things in life. You can save your money and make sure that no matter what happens, you'll have enough to provide for yourself. You can choose to not need other people and you could remove relationships from your life because they're too messy and they're too unpredictable and they lead to too much pain and suffering. You can remove things from your life or you can add things to your life in an effort to desire to be really self-sufficient. And that seems to be the best that the world can offer us. But the problem with self-sufficiency and why it always breaks down and fails is this. It comes from inside of us. It comes from us. It comes from within us. And the Bible tells us that, that we can't get anywhere by just digging within ourselves and trying to find the will and the power and the ability, the purity of heart and motive to do something. So we see Paul, somebody who is truly content, somebody who says, I can be content with a lot and I can be content with a little. I can be content with hunger and I can be content with food. And he says that it's a secret, and that it's one that he learned. Now, the word secret here, it's very closely associated with the word initiation. So it's a secret that comes from being initiated into a group of people. Now, some groups keep the secrets, and they say, you just can't have them until you get in. Once you become part of the group, then we'll tell you all the secret stuff. But what he's talking about here, the secrets of the faith, are things that you can only really learn if you're following Jesus. He says, I can't fully describe it, it seems like a secret to people, but it's happened. It's something I've learned as I've followed Jesus and been a part of this group of people, the group of people that you, the Philippian church, belong to, the group of people that if you're here and you're a believer, you belong to. You have access to the secrets because what Paul tells you can actually make sense to you. I was talking with Pastor Dave this week, and we were talking about, well, I'll say this. I spent all week looking at this passage and, and recognizing how much I want to experience the kind of contentment that Paul has. I've talked with you guys last week even about having a lot of anxiety, and I've been dealing a lot with anxiety, and anxiety is kind of rooted in fear, 
And, uh, and it's just being afraid of things, of maybe losing things or things that can happen to you. And what it does is it makes you realize very quickly maybe how much of your hope is in, is in other stuff that you could lose besides maybe who God is. And, uh, and there's a component of it that isn't just about faith, obviously, but there's a point at which um, in dealing with that stuff, I recognize the lack of contentment that's in my life. And I read this passage and I say, I, if I felt like this, I would be invincible. I'd have nothing to fear. My life would truly be fulfilling. I would experience a profound sense of joy that nothing else could compare to. And as I've thought about it this week, and I've looked at it, and I've looked at the secret that Paul has learned. I got to this point this last weekend where I just thought again and again and again, how do I communicate this thing because I think, honestly, it's not what we want it to be. We, we all can agree that we want to be content like Paul is, but we hope that it's by somehow doing something with the other stuff that we have our contentment rooted in. Most of the, most of the things I saw when I pulled up YouTube were that. They were about finding contentment by... by, by seeing certain things about what's going on with your life by changing your mindset in the way that you look at things. I was talking with Pastor Dave on Monday and he was asking me a question. Pastor Dave asked great questions. And he said, what do you, when do you find peace? What gives you peace? And I thought for a moment and I said, I can tell you what gives me contentment. When I feel really content. And I said, every night my kids get ready for bed and they put on their pajamas and now my kids have robes. That's a really big deal. They're very excited about their robes. And they put on robes, too. And, uh, and then we, get, we sit on our bed, uh, mom and dad's bed. It's the big one, you know. And, and, uh, and it's the only time Barry, our dog, is allowed on the bed. And he knows, and he gets up there. And we watch Reading Rainbow, okay? Um, we either watch Reading Rainbow or Bob Ross, but mostly it's been Reading Rainbow lately because they're into both of those shows. And, and as we do that, my kids, they always find some kind of blanket or something nearby. They, they get as close as they can to me. And my son, Tegan, is so like over the top in the way that he reacts to things sometimes that he'll actually multiple times through this 25-minute period of watching a show say, I love this. This is so great. This is my favorite. Like he says this stuff. And you're like, oh, man, you know, who does that? And I sit there in those moments, and I, and I remember the things that so many older people have told me, which is, they said, soak it up. These times are going to come, and you're going to miss them, because your kids will grow up, and they won't do this stuff anymore, and you'll wish that you had paid the most attention that you possibly could. And, and, and I know that that's true, because obviously, if we were still doing this when my kids are 16, it would be weird. Hopefully some of you would say, that's kind of weird. I'd be like, okay, guys, let's have another routine. We're not going to sit in bed and watch Reading Rainbow. So I know that they get past this. I know that this time is limited and it's fleeting, but I recognize, you guys do? That's good. Yeah, yeah. Chris' stories like I do that, you know. So I recognize that, and I sit there, and I am completely content. I just go, this is so good, and I don't want anything else right now. I don't want more than this. I don't need more than this. It's not about money. It's not about the circumstances of my life, it seems. It's just about these people and, and this time that we have together. And I sit there in that moment and I feel content. And I was thinking about that this week. And I was thinking, that's not what Paul's talking about. And I want so badly for that to be what Paul's talking about. 
I do. I want to be able to say that if we stop, the contentment is about stopping and appreciating the fleeting moments of life that are wonderful for what they are, fleeting moments, or, or, or just the relationships. Relationships are more important than stuff. You know, that's contentment. I realize that's not what he's talking about, and that's why it's hard for us to hear and to learn the secret that he has. Sitting around a big Thanksgiving table, with food and, and people, the ones that matter the most to you. And enjoying this time and looking around and counting your blessings and saying, how good is this? I'm content right now. These people mean a lot to me. I'm, maybe I'm not describing your Thanksgiving, but we'll say, you know, we'll be optimistic here. These people, this is great. I'm grateful for this food. I know a lot of people don't have food. I'm going to eat way, way more than I should, you know, and other people go hungry. And so we think in those moments, I'm really content. This is great. But that's not what Paul's talking about either. For some, the idea of of having a career, having your life dedicated to something and then retiring, and being able to look back and say, I feel good about what I did. I feel good about what I built and what I was a part of. Even if it's not the most earth-shattering thing, I feel good about that. I can sit back and I can look at my kids and my family and I can say, kids are grown up, grandkids are on the way. I feel good about that. I feel content. We kind of did it, you know? And I don't need a bunch of money. I don't need a bunch of fancy trips because I can sit in this and I can maybe feel content with what I've done and what's happened and how good things have been and how blessed we've been. But that's not what Paul's talking about either. You could even live in a country like this where we are free, where we have liberty, something that is the American ideal that is, that is a founding principle of this nation. And we do have liberty, that regardless of how we feel about the state of the country, depending on the election cycle or, or who we vote for or anything else, regardless of how we feel at any one time or another, we, we have to admit we're free and we have liberty and we live in a place that, that, that we recognize that so much of the rest of the world does not have many of the advantages that we have. And many of us will be born here and we'll die here and we'll experience all of those things knowing that most of people historically even who have long lived and died have not been able to experience what we have. That we're safe and we're, we feel secure. We can provide for our families and know that they could probably provide for their families. This is something that we can feel a sense of contentment and security in. But that's not what Paul's talking about either. He's not talking about any of these things that I think really I want contentment to be in so badly. Because I really do enjoy them. What Paul is talking about, it's this thing that he's learned. It is this secret that has taken probably a lifetime for him to learn. And it's something that he talked about earlier in Philippians. And it's this. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And I know it sounds like I'm recycling sermons and I'm just, you know, out of material. But this is what Paul finds his contentment in. To live is Christ my life is rooted in Christ, so somehow my fulfillment and contentment and joy come from Christ. And, and to die is gain because of how much I'm living in Christ. It gets even better after I die. And so I can be the kind of content 
that is not really dependent on any of the other stuff. It makes all the other stuff icing on the cake. And we all know what it would do to you if all you ever ate was icing. But that's what many of us subsist on, that we live on, is that. And so Paul's got his own math. He's got his own math worked out, and it's very simple. The more I give of myself, of my heart, of my life to Christ, the more I say, I need to have life in him, not in these other things that I care so much about, that I live for. The more that I can let go and say, I'm going to be living in him, rooted in him, drawing my my contentment from him, the more I will receive in return. That it's like the best investment that you could ever make, that it always returns better than what you give. And Paul learned that. And that's the secret. The secret is, if we live for what Paul lived for, then we would be as content as he is. And it would be a kind of contentment that is profoundly better than anything else that we could experience. Paul learned all these things along the way. He learned that, that affliction is to be expected, that it's a part of life. And so when bad things happen and hard things happen, Paul said, well, affliction is a part of life in a fallen world. And so because I know that, it doesn't stop me from going about my life. It doesn't, it doesn't make me freeze up and say, I just have to deal with this thing and end this problem in my life, and then I can go back on to being content with the life that I have. He says, I know affliction is a part of life. He says in Romans 8 that we suffer with him, with Christ, and we will be glorified with him. He sees suffering as going hand in hand with following Christ. But he says it's a part of life. And when it happens, it's not going to, it's not going to deter me from this thing that I'm doing. And many of us, the biggest challenge to contentment is just when things get hard, going, this isn't how it's supposed to be. He says, he, Paul also recognizes something about himself that we see again and again and again, and it's this. He, he sees that he's a sinner. He, 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 never, he doesn't ever stop looking inward at himself and saying, I'm aware of the fact that no matter what I experience in my life, no matter how hard things get or how good things are, that all of that stuff is like this big compared to the grace of God that is the only reason that I'm alive. That there is nothing worse than being an enemy of God, which is what I was. And then because of Jesus, God's grace has given me life. And so I am content knowing that no matter what happens, that I have something that is more valuable and worthwhile than all of even the relationships and the money and, and the comfort and the security of my life. I have the grace of God. And I can live in that thing, and that changes everything for the way that I live. To live as Christ means that all the things that we talk about in December, the peace, the joy, the love, the hope, that these things are found in him. That like the more connected we are to him, the more we experience those things in a profound way. And the more that we experience those things, the more content that we are regardless of how good things are or how difficult things are. And Paul also knows something else. He knows that heaven is actually going to be better than this life. I mean, he actually believes that. Can you believe it? 
He actually thinks about heaven and how good it's going to be. He says to die is gain. The, what we consider to be, let's be honest, the worst thing that could happen is death. And Paul says it's gain because heaven is better. If I draw my life from Jesus and all heaven promises me is more of God, more of Christ, good news, it only gets better later. How could I not be content knowing that? How could I not live my life with a joy knowing that is true? And so he says to die is gain. He says in Philippians 3 earlier, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. He believes this stuff. I think the truth is that many of us don't think about this stuff. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about what's actually ahead and what will take up like eternally more the length of our life than this limited period of time that we're living right now. And for many of us, the truth is, honestly, we, we're like, we'll die and we'll go to heaven and we'll be like, oh yeah, <laughs> I totally forgot about this. This is awesome. This is like such a bonus. This is really good, right? I mean, really. It'll be just like, oh yeah, whoa, this is great. Okay, cool. Because the math that we want to live our lives by is simple. Oh yeah, heaven's great. You don't get me wrong. But I want to get the most I can out of life, right? I want to live the longest, best, most abundant life I can and then go to heaven. That's what we all want. We want it so much that it begins to make this thing that's ahead of us, that Paul again and again, and Jesus himself says again and again, keep your mind fixed upon the eternal inheritance that you have. Know how good it's going to be. We know what it's like to look forward to something really good. We know what that does for us, what that does for any circumstance, any situation, any season of life, to look ahead to something that we are excited and anticipating, that we're excited about. We know what it is to do that with other things. And Paul recognizes that, that that is heaven. It is eternity with God. What Paul knows, what he's learned, the secret, it's very simple. It is that in the gospel and in Jesus is life. And in anything else, we will be ultimately let down. We'll be dependent upon more of that thing. And ultimately, anything else that we give ourselves to or invest in or find our contentment in, it will change. It will go away. And when it does, we'll find ourselves feeling something that we feel way too often in this life, which is, which is empty and not content. And Paul knows this. And so the secret is simple. Live for what he lives for and experience the kind of contentment that he does. And I think that we look at this and we say, like, like uh, even if we believe that that's true, even if we believe Jesus when he says, the yoke is easy and the burden is light, that joy is found here, even if we believe that and we think it's not actually just hard and bad and difficult, but we earn something or whatever, even if we believe Paul when he sits in jail and he writes to the Philippians and says, I'm okay, I'm okay. Even if we believe it, do you know why it's not what we want to hear? It's because it seems totally impossible to many of us. We, we hear that and we go, I can't do that. I can't. 
I'm surrounded by other things to find contentment in. I, I can't do it. That's like, a, that's like a beyond varsity level thing, and I'm not there yet. And so it just doesn't even seem realistic like anything that is attainable. And that's kind of true, which is why the good news is that Paul ends this knowing this by saying, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I've been going over this verse again and again and again all week going, why does Paul say this here? Why does he say this here? Because most of us just take this, right? And we put this on a bumper sticker and say, yes, whatever I want to do and achieve and accomplish in life and whoever I want to become, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That he's going to make all my dreams possible because through him I have tapped into the greatest source of energy and life and resources that I could ever have. And so all things are possible with him. No, Paul is saying, this thing I'm telling you is really difficult and it seems impossible in your own effort. But the good news is, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That he himself is the source of the strength to even do this thing. Again, the math is really good here because it's, life is found in him and when we can't get there ourselves, he says, okay, I'll get you there. He says, I will get you there. Come to me and l- begin to let go. And as you do that, as Paul did, you will experience life and fulfillment and contentment and joy. Joy is so elusive to us. And Paul knows this. The gospel brings it. And it's because he knows that the gospel brings it along with life that he gets so upset at anything that ever gets in the way of the gospel. He calls people who add things to the gospel dogs. He talks about all the good things in his own life that could potentially take away from focusing on the gospel. And he calls that rubbish. He says anything that gets in the way is getting in the way of the thing that really makes me content and gives me joy. And I think that one of the great pieces of news about this is the tendency that we have is to, this part isn't the good news, the tendency that we have is to take things that God has has given many of us And to make those things the things that our joy is in, our hope is in, our contentment is in. And in doing that, we place an impossible weight on those things. We place an impossible expectation and responsibility on the weight of our families, of our spouses, of our jobs, of our health. We we place more on those things than they could ever bear and they were ever meant to bear. And what we do is that we begin to hurt those things under the weight of that. They begin to crush under the weight of that thing. And so the other piece of good news is that, and again, the math is great, is that when those things aren't what we find our joy in, then we can appreciate those things for what they are and not resent the fact or f- that they don't give us what we want or not fear the fact that even though they give us what we want now, that they might not in the future. The math is really good. And I think that it's possible. And what it leads to is gratitude. It leads to looking at your life the way that Paul does, sitting in a prison cell, saying, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the life that I've had. I'm grateful for how God has shown up and proven to be true all the things that I thought were true about him. 
I'm grateful for the secret that I've learned. I'm grateful for the fact that I can truly feel content. I want that. I've looked at this all week and I've thought, I want this and what Paul has. And I'm determined to get it. But it's not going to be on my own effort. And if, if you're here and you're, and you're not a Christian and, you're, and you don't follow Jesus, then you can't just work towards it. Because you need Christ. You need to, to let go and to say that life is found in him. Repent of your sins. Seek his forgiveness. And recognize that it is only that way that you can begin to experience this because Christ is the only one that can make the impossible possible. It's a time of year when we love anticipating Jesus' birth. It's Advent season. We're getting ready for the holidays. And I was talking to a friend yesterday who was pointing out to me that um, he was a pastor and he was pointing out to me that, that we, we want to want Jesus, but we don't want to need Jesus. We want Jesus to be the cherry, like, like Christmas, the cherry on top of a great year. I'll take him. He'll make my life better. Sure, why not? That's good. I love that Jesus came. I'm so, I'm so glad he was born. But what we have the hardest time doing is needing Jesus for life. Saying at this time of year, I needed him to be born. Because without that, I could have no hope for contentment in life. It's getting to that point that we really begin to see the value of Christ himself. Let's pray. Father, I confess to you that my joy is very, very often not rooted in you. I say that it's because I'm just surrounded by other things that I want to take joy in, that I want to find contentment in. And that when I try to fix that, I do it on my own effort, and I usually just end up taking things away from my life and trying to brace myself for the worst or something, thinking that maybe that can lead to contentment that doesn't, Lord. And my prayer is that I would believe what, what I see in Paul's life, that relying upon you leads to something profoundly different. I pray that you would give all of us the courage to be able to let go of these things that we hold on to and find contentment in, that we would begin to see a glimpse of what it means to live Christ. And that as we do that, we look forward to heaven. That we look forward to heaven knowing that it is better and that nothing can separate us from that if we're in Christ. And we also get to enjoy the things that you've given us for what they are and not put an impossible weight on them, Lord. We, we thank you for these things, God. We praise you for these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Father, this is a time of year when we celebrate why it is well, Lord. Uh, when we remember your son and we celebrate the fact that it is well for us and our soul and our lives because of Jesus. For some of us, that's exactly what we need to hear in a time when we don't feel like all is well. For others of us, things are so good, and yet we know that things don't always stay the way they are, that nothing lasts forever. And so the only way for our soul to truly be well, Lord, is to put our contentment in you, Father.
And so that is our prayer, that every week as we gather and anticipate the coming of Christ more and more, as we come up to the very day of Christmas, Lord, that we would think on why it is well because Christ came, Lord. Thank you so much, God, for what you've done and for who you are. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great week.